Good morning. I feel like I got to try that again. Good morning. We didn't change our clocks today, did we? I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. After several weeks in the Psalms, as we wrapped up the summer, we are returning to Exodus. Exodus chapter 21. The West Wing was a popular political drama TV show that aired in the early 2000s, set in the West Wing of the White House. And in one episode, President Josiah Bartlett verbally spars with this conservative talk radio host, fictitious character named Dr. Jenna Jacobs. The president says to Dr. Jacobs, I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does, responds Dr. Jacobs with a little bit of snark in her tone. Yes, it does. Leviticus, says the president. 1822, Dr. Jacobs adds. Chapter and verse, notes the president, and he goes on. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21, verse 7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35, 2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins, this dates this episode, still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about these questions, would you? Now, President Bartlett's barrage against the Bible sounds impressive and intimidating, particularly because it sounds like he knows the Old Testament, chapter and verse, but he is both mistaken and misleading. For one, Scripture does not call for the death penalty for anyone mixing their crops or wearing mixed fabrics. But the writers of the West Wing use this scene to cleverly package a popular argument against the Bible for primetime TV. How can the Bible be trusted? How can the Bible be trusted as a source of absolute moral authority when so many of the commands contained here are obviously embarrassing? outdated, regressive, oppressive, even immoral. In his challenge, President Bartlett refers to Old Testament commands that sounds, sound strange and even offensive to modern ears. And one of those, if you caught that, comes from our text this morning, Exodus 21. We're going to cover three chapters from Exodus this morning, spanning Exodus 20, verse 22, to chapter 23, verse 19. If you were wondering how we were going to get through the second half of Exodus by Christmas, 
This is part of it. Along with the Ten Commandments, which is where we left off in the middle of the summer, these detailed instructions contained here comprise what Exodus 24 verse 7 calls the Book of the Covenant. So you've got the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and then these rules that God gives right after the Ten Commandments, and all of this together is called the Book of the Covenant. I'm not going to make you stand while I read the whole thing. We're going to read just an excerpt from the beginning of chapter 21, which will give a sense of the content of this section, including some of these challenging commands. So I want to invite you to stand with me because we do revere God and his word, including these commands in Exodus 21 as I read verse 1 through verse 11. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And so like all of your words, this also is true and authoritative, it's clear, it's necessary for us, it's edifying to our souls, though it takes some work and most of all it takes the help of your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds. And so we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What are we supposed to think about rules like these? Because we don't live in ancient Israel, we are not under the jurisdiction of Moses, and it is clear as we read Scripture that these rules don't apply to us in a wooden, one-to-one kind of way, as I hope to show you. However, we must not fall into the ditch on the other side of the road and assume All of this here in Exodus is irrelevant to us. There's nothing here for us that is edifying. Since these rules come from God, they do reveal to us something of God. And it's crucial to consider, I believe, the nature of God's law as well as our attitude toward it. Psalm 119, the longest of all the Psalms, a chapter in the Bible longer than some other books in the Bible, It's an acrostic poem that celebrates God's law. And while the serpent and his offspring have been saying from the garden, did God really say? Just consider how David 
marvels at God's law when he writes in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I think that's an appropriate prayer to pray when you come to texts like this. There are, I know by faith, wondrous things here. Open my eyes to see that. David delights in God's law, Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And keep in mind, David said this not in some restricted way, just talking about the Ten Commandments. He said this about the entirety of God's law, including Exodus 21 through 23. Exodus 21, verse 1 begins, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Exodus 24, 3 provides a bookend to all of this book of the covenant when it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. That Hebrew word used at the beginning and the end, the rules. That word David uses 23 times in Psalm 119. He's talking about God's law, God's commands, God's precepts, God's rules, God's ways. These rules offend modern, enlightened thinkers. But David declares, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. He says in verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. It's all true. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Every one of them. So that's my aim in this survey of Exodus 20 through 23, to convince you that all of God's rules are right that all of his ways are wise, that all of his judgments are just, that you do not need to be intimidated by unbelievers who reject God's word. You need not fear that God's word contains outdated and regressive and embarrassing sections. You can be sure God's word is trustworthy and true and authoritative. It is the only source of divine revelation available to man. I want to show you that God's rules are right by showing the rightness of four aspects of God's law. Its source, its form, its content, and its aim. The source, the form, the content, and the aim of God's law, beginning with the source of God's law. First, God's rules are right because they come from God himself. This is Undoubtedly, the emphatic claim in Exodus that God personally gave this law to his people at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, verse 1, leading into the Ten Commandments, began, and God spoke all these words. And then we have the Ten Commandments, after which Exodus 20, verse 22 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. That's the claim of Scripture. The Word of God has the very authority of God because God spoke it, which means, as we've said before, whatever you do with God's Word, 
you do with God himself. If you ignore God's word, you ignore God. If you disobey his word, you disobey God. Throughout Exodus 20 through 23, God frequently reminds himself in these detailed rules and instructions and commands that he gives, he is reminding his people he himself is personally involved in upholding his law and executing justice and enacting penalties. Exodus 22, 23 through 24 says, if you do mistreat them, this is talking about widows and orphans, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. These rules come from God and he's paying attention. He is watching and observing, Exodus 22, 27. And if he, now it's talking about your poor neighbor, if he cries out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. God is personally involved. Exodus 23, verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. God is personally vested in his law. Because God's word comes from God himself, it expresses God's moral will. It reveals God's righteous ways. It, it communicates to us God's holy character. And this is why David can use the very attributes of God to describe the law of God in Psalm 119. Do you remember from math or geometry that transitive principle? You know, if, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's early, I know. If God is holy and righteous and good, and his word comes from him, then his word is holy and righteous and good. Whatever is true of God is true of his word. Paul says in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and righteous and good. God's laws are not oppressive. They are not regressive. They are not immoral. God describes himself in Exodus 22, 27 as compassionate. You can be sure that every command he gives here is an expression of his compassion. When God says that he opposes false charges, that he will not acquit the wicked, you can be sure that his law is given to uphold truth and justice. Whatever is true of the character of God is true of the law of God as well. So God's rules are right because they come from God, and God is right. That's the foundation of this claim. God's law is anchored in God's own supreme authority, and this means, this is crucial in responding to those who critique God's law. It means it's not enough for critics to cite some verse out of the Old Testament and then laugh dismissively like that command is so obviously Wrong. Wrong according to whom? By what standard is it wrong? You can only reject God's law by appealing to a better law, a higher authority. So if you reject the law of God given at Sinai, you must tell us the name of your God and where he has spoken so that we might know him and walk in his ways. Atheistic evolutionists can laugh all they want at Old Testament laws, and when they're done laughing and they catch their breath, they have to tell us 
the moral system that they're using when they find the law of God to be immoral. And they can't do it because in their story, there is no right or wrong. So you might not personally like the laws of Exodus, but you can't claim that they're wrong without appealing to some authority over all of us. God's rules are right because they're grounded in the transcendent and universal authority of God himself. Second, the wisdom of God is on display in the very form of God's law. That is, the way God has communicated his law to man. Exodus 21 verse 1 introduces this section of laws saying, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And that word rules could be translated literally the rulings or the judgments. So what we have here is not simply a list of statutes and regulations. What we have here is a collection of sample cases along with the answer key, which is really helpful. Here's a complicated dispute, and here's the just judgment for that case. God's own judgment revealed. These judgments reveal how God's law applies in concrete cases. In the Ten Commandments, you have broadly, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Now here's how it applies in real life. Since these judgments reveal how God's law applies in concrete cases, then they also establish legal precedent for future cases. Today we call this type of legal system a case law system. One of the strengths of case law is that it deals in concrete facts. It tells you a little story. A man dug a pit, and somebody else's donkey fell into it. Here's what you should do to make it right. Concrete things, not abstract, vague rules trying to cover every scenario in life. It, if you're a parent, then I assume that you can appreciate this. Just think back, before you had kids, could you ever have anticipated all the ways that your kids were going to misbehave? If you had to, at the outset, before your first child was born, sit down and write out an exhaustive list of all the statutes and regulations and rules that would govern your household, could you have thought of all the rules you would need? Would it have crossed your mind that one day one of your kids might try to tape candy on the wall? Did you have a rule that said no taping candy to the wall or no painting the dog or no pulling down your pants at the breakfast table? You have to think about all of these eventualities. But God gives case laws which communicate moral principles that apply in all kinds of other cases. Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 is a go-to example of biblical case law. That verse says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So if you treat the law of Moses like regulatory law and you try to apply everything in a rigid one-to-one -one way, you would go and literally build a railing around your roof. Do you have a railing on your roof? Aha, you hypocrite. How can you say homosexuality is a sin when you yourself don't obey all the laws of Scripture? But this is case law. Case law communicates moral principles, or what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls the general equity of the law, which still applies but looks different in different cultures, in different times, while the truth at the heart of it is unchanged. So what's the general equity required in the law about parapets on roofs? 
Property owners are responsible for the safety and well-being of people on their own property. In fact, the city of Sioux Falls vouches for the wisdom and rightness of God's ways. We have city ordinances that require railings on our decks, fences around backyards with pools, repairs for sidewalks that are cracked and pose a tripping hazard. Because case law deals with concrete cases, it also reminds us that things like sin and righteousness and love and justice, these are not abstract ideas. These two are concrete matters. Love is, our culture wants to define love as you know, sending positive vibes your way. A mood, energy. In scripture, love is practical. It's acted out, it's demonstrated. So Exodus 21 through 23, as you read through it, it just deals with really earthy situations like what happens if one guy knocks out another guy's tooth? And what happens about that donkey that's still in the pit? And what should you do if you notice that your neighbor's ox is wandering free and also your neighbor hates you? And so you don't particularly feel like helping him with his ox. What if your neighbor's donkey gets a flat tire? Then what do you do? These are just real life situations and they are the outworking, the application, the expression of love. Sin and righteousness are not abstract. They are very concrete. They come out of our fingertips. And God's case law is brilliantly suited for redemptive history and progressive revelation. How can the infinite God who transcends all humanity and all human language, how can he communicate himself to finite people who live in a particular place at a particular time in history so as to reveal himself to all people in all places in all times? The wisdom of God to communicate in this way is it's astonishing. No wonder David marvels at God's law. Just like an acorn carries the DNA of the oak tree that it will become, God's law here encapsulates God's righteousness, which grows and expands until it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The form of God's law displays God's wisdom. Third, the wisdom of God's ways is evident in the content of his law. I, I wish we had time to walk through all the rules here so we could unpack these. That would be well worth our time. But I want to consider just three laws to demonstrate God's ways are wise. Verse 2 says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, and we all think, wait, what? When you buy a slave? Why didn't God simply forbid slavery? Why, why did he permit it and regulate it? And it's true. Scripture never condemns slavery in and of itself as sin. But violating God's laws about slavery certainly is sin, and God's law regulates how slaves were to be acquired and how they were to be treated and how they were to be set free. So Exodus 21 verse 16 is unambiguous. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So right off the bat, kidnapping, human trafficking, that is a capital offense. And so that condemns the entire transatlantic slave trade, in case you're worried. However, the Bible does permit slavery, most often, most commonly, to pay off debts due to some extreme poverty or as a punishment for theft. And then God sets clear 
boundaries because he is righteous and just and compassionate. And his laws protect slaves from abuse and exploitation. Exodus 22, 25 through 27 forbids exploiting the poor to profit from their need. Chapter 21, verses 26 through 27, if a master causes permanent physical damage to a slave, that slave goes free for nothing. Exodus 21, 20, if a master killed a slave, he was to be executed. He didn't have right over that slave's life like that. And Exodus 21 sets time limits on slavery. After six years, a slave was to be released. Deuteronomy 15 goes into even greater detail on this when it says, when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. So, think about this. A Hebrew in extreme poverty, could become a slave and go live and have all their living expenses covered by a productive household, could go work for a faithful Israelite believer, learn a trade, gain a skill, get back on their feet, and then after that, he was sent out with a generous starter kit for life. Here's livestock for you to start your own household, Here's food, here's wine for you. Exodus 21, 5 through 6 even anticipates conditions for slaves that were so good, a man might actually choose to stay there forever. Contrast that to welfare in our country where we subsidize homelessness and drug addiction, where we perpetuate personal irresponsibility and dehumanizing dependence on others. And the city of San Francisco will give you $620 a month plus $200 a month in food stamps to be homeless. I heard an interview last year with one man who moved to San Francisco from across the country because he didn't want to pay rent anywhere. And he thought if they're just handing out $820 a month, that'd be great. He has Netflix and Amazon Prime on his phone. And he's enjoying life. Proverbs 12.10 says, The mercy of the wicked is cruel. Consider another example here. What do we do with Exodus 21-7 when a man sells his daughter as a slave? Fathers, can you imagine ever selling your daughter as a slave? First, I don't think slave is the best interpretation of this Hebrew word. We should also clarify what this is not talking about. It is tragically common today to hear of parents who do traffic their daughters for drug money for example. God strictly forbids prostitution in Leviticus 19.29. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. These laws here in Exodus 21, 7 through 11, most likely deal with the situation where family in some extreme financial crisis could receive early financial compensation for a marriage arrangement. These rules actually protect vulnerable girls in impoverished families from exploitation. That's crucial. God is not sanctioning cruelty. He is protecting people from it. In verse 8, if the marriage arrangement is called off, the girl may not be sold into slavery to foreigners. That would be a violation of trust. But she's to be redeemed by her family. Verse 9 gives her a privileged status, calls her for her to be treated like a daughter if she marries the other man's 
son. Verse 10 guarantees her permanent protection and provision as a wife. So I want to suggest, cross-culturally, as strange as this sounds to our ears at first, it's not all that strange. In fact, think about how we do it in our culture today. At weddings, we still ask who gives this woman to be married to this man. Not only does the father of the bride in our culture give his daughter away, but in our culture, who traditionally pays for the wedding? The bride and her parents do. And that tradition comes down to us from the European dowry system where parents of the bride gave a sum of money to a man who would marry their daughter. So over time, you can imagine, what was the perception of daughters? They're expensive. They're dreaded even. Less desirable than sons because that's going to cost us a lot of money someday. But in the Bible, the bride price was actually paid by the man. See Exodus 22, 16 through 17. Or remember Genesis 29 where Jacob worked seven years to marry Rachel. Seven years of income. So think about this again. The average wedding in South Dakota costs $20,000. Dads, would you rather pay $20,000 for a wedding, or give your daughter in marriage to a man you approve of who has three to seven years worth of income saved up to give to her. That sounds better to me. God's law did not sanction abuse or exploitation. It provided compassionate protections for the most vulnerable. And in our chronological snobbery, we look back on the Bible and think, this is horrifying. And instead, American parents put their teenage daughters on birth control. God's ways are much higher than ours. One more. Exodus 21, 33, all the way through 22, 17, deals with just punishment for theft. And in a word, justice requires restitution. Returning what was taken, plus some. Depending on the type of property that was stolen, God requires paying back anywhere from two to five times the value of what was stolen. Restitution is a critical but missing aspect of repentance today. We tend to forget that when we sin, we sin against God for sure, and most of the time we also sin against others. And making things right with those that we have wronged is an important outworking of being right with God. Just to see the superiority of God's ways, again, consider two alternatives. The Quran gives the Muslim penal code for theft, And it says, as for male and female thieves, cut off their hands for what they have done. A deterrent from Allah. And Allah is almighty, all wise. That directly contradicts the key principle of God's justice found here in Exodus 21, 23 through 25. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. God says the punishment must fit the crime, not exceed it, chopping off the hand of a thief who can now no longer work productively to earn money to pay back what he took, or consider how we handle theft in America with prison time. We already have a mass incarceration problem with nearly two million people locked up. That's up from 360,000 people in the early 70s. Two million people incarcerated in America. So we cage people up like animals, and then we fund it with taxpayer money, while victims of theft are oftentimes left to rely on insurance companies, hopefully, maybe, 
to cover their losses. I talked a couple weeks ago about stolen vehicles in Sioux Falls. One guy in Sioux Falls who had his truck stolen recently is now stuck in this nightmare where the insurance company doesn't want to cover it. So he's without a truck this whole time. I know someone whose car was stolen in Chicago, one of those Kia Challenge TikTok things. He said the police know who did it, but it's not worth their time to go after these juveniles because the most they would face would be like three weeks in juvenile detention. God's ways are so much higher than our ways. So much more right and just and good. Finally, God's rules are right because they aim at fellowship with God. The purpose of God's law is to prepare God's people to dwell with God. The very first topic that God deals with here after the Ten Commandments is laws about altars. And he says in Exodus 20, verse 24, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And then the book of the covenant ends by giving instructions about feasts, about worship gatherings where God's people would appear before the Lord God. But how can a holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people? Remember those repeated warnings in Exodus 19? If anyone even touches the foot of the mountain, he will die. So God gives these rules to his people, not to restrict them and burden them, but so that he might dwell with them. It's like when your car manufacturer tells you, change the oil every 3,000 miles. They don't tell you that to ruin your life. They tell you that to maximize the life of your vehicle. So God told Israel in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And as we've said throughout Exodus, Israel did not become God's people by their obedience. They were to obey because they were the people of God. The problem with the Old Covenant was not that it contained some outdated and embarrassing or primitive morality that had to be upgraded. Like God looked at that and thought, that's awkward. Let me try again, version 2.0. No, the problem with the Old Covenant was it required perfect righteousness and it, the law, could not accomplish perfect righteousness in your heart. So Jesus came to do what the law could not do. He came to fulfill all the righteous demands of the law, and he obeyed perfectly. He came to satisfy the law's demands for justice for all those who have broken the law, and he paid in full all that the law requires. Jesus came not to overthrow the law and apologize for primitive morality. He came to fulfill it as Paul says in Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The new covenant promises that God now does through the gospel what the law could not do. The gospel is not God's great lowering of the standard, saying, you know, that, that was just too much, too crazy. Let me just lower the bar so you all can get over it. No, The gospel is the lowering of God himself to fulfill the law, to raise you up so that the law can be fulfilled in you. And so we have new covenant promises like Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, listen to this. I will put my law within them. And 
I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Not, I will scrap that law. No, I will write it on your hearts. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, my judgments. This is the promise of God empowering you to live by faith in the wisdom of his ways. By his spirit, God writes his laws on your heart so you can enjoy this blessing of walking with him all your days in the rightness of his rules and living with him and enjoying him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we do pray with David that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Open our eyes. Most of all, we pray that you would help us to see the glory of Jesus, our great Savior, who fulfilled all righteousness, who redeems us from our sin, who reconciles us to you, who pours out the Holy Spirit on us, who empowers us to walk in your ways. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.